welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, my name is Dr. Mohan Dutt, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. John Barkham and Dr. Alok Sachdeva. For first-time listeners, we are a sleep medicine-focused podcast that uses expert interviews to dive into the complex aspects of various sleep medicine topics. We're a free form and generally unscripted, and therefore I would like to take this time to say that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the views of the University of Michigan or the Veterans Administration. In addition, we do not provide medical advice. If you are in need of immediate medical assistance, please contact your personal physician or call 911. I would again like to thank you for listening. We hope this podcast not only entertains, but teaches you something new. In this episode, we will be joined by Dr. Paul Hoff. Dr. Hopp finished his medical school and residency training at the University of Michigan in 1993 and 1999, respectively. He has been in private practice as a partner in Michigan Otolaryngology Surgery Associates since 1999. He serves as the president of the practice and is the director of sleep surgery at St. Joe's Health System. In addition, he is an associate professor at the University of Michigan, where he takes lead in the multidisciplinary Obstructive Sleep Apnea Neurostimulation Clinic. His research interest uh, focuses on improving patient outcomes in sleep surgery and resident education. All right. Hello and welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. I'm Dr. Mohan Dutt. Joining me is, as always, Dr. John Barkham. And today, uh, Dr. Paul Hoff is going to be talking to us about all things Inspire or hypoglossal nerve stimulation. So, um, Paul, welcome. Thank you for, thanks for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Look forward to having a conversation about this, this great topic. Great, great to be back again. Just uh, <laughs> FYI, <laughs> this is our second time recording this, uh, due to, uh, negligence on my part. Um, the SD card was not in, uh, the last time we recorded and I didn't notice. So. Um, take two. Yeah, this is this is definitely take two, but it is it is recording. We have all the requisite lights on this time. So, um, again, uh, you know, uh, just to kind of uh, to start out, we always start with some get to know you questions. So, Paul, the first question we have for you is, how did you get into sleep medicine? It's kind of a long long story. I mean, it goes way back to when I first started my training at, at Michigan. Um, I started in 1993 and I had a, a, a great, um, mentor who was, uh, he trained at, uh, at Henry Ford, which was a place where they did a lot of sleep medicine and sleep surgery, uh, pioneering in sleep surgery. And, uh, he introduced me to the UPPP, um, which was, you know, kind of the old school uh, procedure developed in the 1980s. Um, really is carried through. People are still doing uh, this procedure. Um, and then as I got into my own practice, uh, started recognizing that uh, more needed to be done. In fact, they knew more needed to be done at Henry, at Henry Ford, um, that, and, uh, in Detroit, uh, with the tongue base, uh, but they never really had a good way to address it. And so, um, that's how I, I started getting into it and exploring all the different treatments for, um, sort of multi-level surgery. And that included, um, things, including robotic surgery, and then, um, ultimately, um, about, seven, uh, about, I guess, six, uh, seven or eight years ago, uh, the hypoglossal nerve stimulator that was approved in, in 2014. And, uh, that's really, that really changed my practice, but it's been this evolution from sort of basic palate surgery to multiple tongue based procedures. And then finding the thing that seems to work the best. You've kind of done 
you've run the gamut yeah, when it comes yeah. to uh, sleep-related surgeries. The dawn of sleep medicine, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's come along. I mean, obviously, you know, we still, we still see, tri- you know, you triple P's, but um, it's definitely fallen out of how many how many how how many of those do you would you say you do a year anymore well i don't do any uppps because those really you know you're removing a lot of tissue the including the soft pat you know uvula so when you see a person with that procedure you never see a uvula see this big arch in the Mm -hmm. back and a lot of those people have foreign body sensation and a lot of throat clearing issues and and recurrences uh so it's gone to more repositioning of tissue now you hear see the term uh, pharyngoplasty lateral pharyngoplasty repositioning expansion pharyngoplasty just but you're just repositioning tissue rather than removing it so your your question i do probably you know maybe 30 or 40 of those a year um i do more probably hypoglossal nerve stimulators than that though so but that's part of the armamentarium still Mm. um kind of getting back to the to intro questions um what's your we always ask kind of and we you know john and i will chime in with ours as well um, but what's your, what's your kind of thing of the month, you know, this month thing of the month? Well, um, I, you know, I'm really excited about, uh, some upcoming, uh, uh, uh talks I'm going to be giving, um, you know, COVID kind of put a damper on a lot of things. So now all this is coming back and more, there's interest in, you know, the travel and all that. So I love to travel. So my thing of the month, I've, you know, I signed up, I'm, going to Dubai and uh, that's coming up in January and then going to Iceland to talk nice. about sleep apnea in, in May. Oh, wow. Uh, so some, uh, some really uh, cool trips coming up. Um, but uh, that kind of, that's my thing of the month I, travel. I, I need to get on this. Um, <laughs> I need to get on the, the international like sleep travel schedule. Our CME doesn't cover. Yeah. That. Well, cause uh, <laughs> I think, I think uh, chest 2023 is in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, I think I'm going to try to go to that. And I think the world sleep conference is in Rio. There you go. Um, but like, I feel like my wife would never let me go international by myself. So it'd be like taking the kids and the wife. And then it's like, God, oh, do you want to take like, you know, a two year old to, you know, cause then it's like, you're stuck in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, I can't convince my wife to go to Iceland. She said it's May in Iceland. She looked at the weather there. It's like 40 and rainy. And I'm like, I guess I'm going by myself. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Iceland. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. What's what's um, what's your favorite place that you've traveled? Oh, that's a good that's a good question. I you know I, I was fortunate. I went to uh, South Africa. Um, that was, you know, it's on one of these you know sort of safaris where you're taking pictures and seeing all the wildlife. That was that was exotic and beautiful. And my wife and I went to that. It was like a two week sort of trip. That was that was ranks right up there as one of my favorite places. Yeah. What about you? What's your favorite place you travel? I went to Belize in the 1990s when I was 16 years old. Okay, it was awesome. Okay, we spent a week in the jungle. Okay, and we a week on a saltwater cay, and um, we did science stuff. It was like a school thing for Mm -hmm. biology, but it was a blast. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's your thing of the month, John? Getting ready for Christmas. (laughs) What are you? It's been a full time between work and like. Family stuff, it just, I'm just feels so busy. Okay. You know? And this is like sometimes the busiest time of year for everyone to wrap up work and wrap up uh, things they said they're going to get done in 2022. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, you know, the time frame between Thanksgiving and Christmas is just like a, it's compressed. Like a time crunch. Yeah. Everything is like compressed in between. Um, my thing of the month, and I, I said this, I think when we got back a couple, couple episodes ago, but 
it's pretty pertinent again is is Michigan football. I mean, mm-hmm. It is thirteen and zero. I mean, college playoffs. We are two weeks away from from the semifinal, and you know, if we go to LA for the, I I, I took the day off work. I've already put in my request for for national championship tickets, so I will be at SoFi Stadium um, if my wife lets me go. Um, there's always, a, there's always that caveat. You gotta get your hall pass. You gotta get huh? my hall pass. But if she says I can go, I'll be there, um, watching the Wolverines, hopefully win a national championship. So awesome. it is, yeah, it's been a, it's been a long time coming. So I've lived through some lean years, uh, with, with Rich Rod and Brady Oak. So this is, uh, very, very excited for, and, and pleased that the Michigan football team is, is doing well. Um, Okay, so next question we have for you is, what's your favorite book? Oh, my favorite book. Um, you know, I kind of like, uh, th- you know, thrillers. I'm reading uh, yeah, some Ken Follett book right now. Um, you know, so spy, you know, espionage, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff is kind of gets me wrapped up. Kind of a um, takes you takes you away. Like the like like Lee Child and like uh, the Vince Flynn and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm a big uh, so Ken Follett is um, Pillars of Earth. Yeah, is yeah. like awesome. So I've read the first two, uh, Pillars of Earth, and I think something Heaven. I forget what the second one's called, but they're both they're both really good. It's like historical fiction over prolific writer. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's he's pretty awesome. Um, and then last question is, what's the best piece of advice that you think you've gotten, whether it's in medicine or life, anything you can impart to us you know yeah i i think that i mean the best piece of advice i've had is just make sure that when you when you go to work you're not going to work because you're you just that work is fun and uh and i've stuck with that i enjoy what i do it's not like going to work that's i think pretty i think it's good for for new trainees i tell my niece my niece just started med school and i was like make sure you you know i was like don't do this because i'm doing this or don't do it because your granddad did it it's like you have to want to do this because otherwise it's it's not fun you know it's just a chore and you don't it's not good patient care and it's a long road it's not a long to road to find not, value in it or yeah, joy in it absolutely you know there's there's other jobs you can do um that you can make good money and and uh, you know have a good lifestyle so you gotta you gotta kind of really want to do it um so i think thank you that's that is good advice so getting to kind of the topic at hand, which is Inspire. I want to start out by kind of just introducing a case of kind of a typical patient that I think that, you know, John and I would see in clinic and kind of just, you know, work work through it. Um, so, you know, we have a, a you know, a 45-year-old um, gentleman who presents to, to, to sleep clinic um, and he is, you know, has a long-standing history of uh, CPAP non-compliance. Um, he had a sleep study done, you know, three, four years ago that demonstrated, you know, uh, moderate or to severe sleep apnea. I think his AHI was, you know, somewhere in the, you know, in the mid thirties uh, or mid to low thirties, uh, and and he's been uh, attempted attempting to use CPAP for you know four to five years um, since he got the diagnosis. Uh, initially, was placed on auto CPAP. Um, and then, you know, was, was not able, not able to use it, was titrated to a fixed pressure. 
um, because it was thought that, you know, maybe he'd be a little bit more comfortable on a fixed pressure, um, but still just, just not using CPAP, he, you know, continuously says that I, you know, I just, I can't get, it's not comfortable. I don't like having it, anything on my face. Uh, he's tried multiple different types of masks, uh, you know, because of that, that complaint of, of, um, not liking anything on his face, you know, went from a full face mask to a nasal mask, but still just, just doesn't like, doesn't like anything. Um, he's tried uh, CPAP desensitization uh, with sleep psychology uh, and still just just, you know, not really getting anywhere uh, with with um, with using the CPAP is, you know, excessively tired throughout the day has a history of hypertension. Um, his Epworth is, you know, in, in the 15, 16 range um, does take naps, you know, on occasion does find himself dozing off unintentionally, loud snoring, witnessed apneas. Um, so really he comes to sleep clinic and he's like, well, what do we do? You know, what, what do we have to offer? And Hey, I saw, I saw this commercial about a button I can press and it, and it will fix me. So I want to know about inspire. And, and so Paul, could you please tell us and our audience what is Inspire and would this patient be a candidate to undergo that procedure? Wow, that sounds like a, you painted a picture of a, a fairly perfect type of patient for this, <laughs> uh, for this I wonder, procedure. I why. <laughs> um, but there are a number of caveats. Um, so I guess just to start with, I can tell you just what the device is because a lot of people have a you know, impression that, well, you know, this is just a, you push a button and my sleep apnea is cured. They don't really bother to tell you on the commercial that this is actually a surgery and there's some risks with any kind of surgery. Mm-hmm. So you, you do start the conversation with patients who come in um, with that. So the, the uh, you know, the surgery is, it's an outpatient surgery. So you get to go home the same day. Uh, there are two incisions, uh, the one under the chin where the nerve is that moves your tongue. And then there's a, an incision in your chest where we put the battery and the sensing lead so it's basically like a pacemaker for sleep apnea. If you've ever seen a pacemaker, uh, same kind of technology, same kind of electronics. Um, when, a, when it's all installed, just like a pacemaker, you have to give it some time to heal before you even turn it on. And then um, as the surgeon, I don't, I'm not the one who turns it on. I send them back to Dr. Dutt, Dr. Barkham for activation of the device. Um, and that the device is actually followed long-term by sleep medicine. So a device is activated takes about two to three months to kind of acclimate to the device. So your, your remote control or your on off button has another button sort of to allow you to increase the amount of voltage or the gain in the device every week or so you'll go up a level and maybe from level one to 10, level six, maybe you're into it six weeks, you start to get the benefit. And then you eventually go in for what's called a, a titration study or a fine tuned study to uh, figure out, you know, is a level six, it's the best, is a level seven, level five. And hopefully when you do that, uh, you, you will then have your, your settings and your range that you'll go home with. And now you'll be using this successfully. Then you do just push the button and your sleep apnea goes away. But that is a process of, you know, the surgery plus the activation and then acclimation and then long-term follow-up, just like you would with CPAP. Uh, the sleep medicine doctors can download the information so they can see how much you're using it. So if you're a truck driver or a you know, in the transportation industry, you know, it can be, you know, you can submit your numbers to the Department of Transportation. So that that's, it all works like that. Um, but nice. yeah, sorry, but it is a, yeah, it's a surgical procedure um, and you do have to meet certain criteria. Um, 
this patient is a 45 year old with uh, severe sleep apnea. Um, you have to have, um, you have to have a BM body mass index so you, uh, of 32 or less for most patients. That means you just, you can't be really obese. Um, the, the, the success rate falls off as you gain weight. The highest BMIs are patients with uh, 35, but that's uh, a little bit uh, um, in, in debate right now as to what's going to be the upper limit of BMI. There's some talk about going up to even 40, mm-hmm. which is a little worrisome, but every BMI is a little bit of a funny number because some people have real thin necks, but they still have a high BMI, you know, so it, it, that may be okay. Um, you have to have a sleep study done within uh, two years. So if you came in with an old sleep study, uh, sleep medicine would um, order a new sleep study to see if you're a candidate. Um, there is another uh, study that needs to be done. It's not called a sleep study. It's called a sleep endoscopy. Um, so if it looks like you're a candidate, you're interested, and you know we've examined you and find that there's really not any other great alternatives, like you don't have big tonsils or some other anatomic factor that we can easily take care of. Um, then you have, then we do something called a sleep endoscopy. So this is a sedated exam that's a, kind of done as a standalone procedure just to see what your airway is doing when you're sleeping. Um, it's, it's pretty neat. We, what you can see when somebody's awake in the exam room versus when they're sedated and snoring, and you can actually see what the pattern of airway collapse is, pinpoint areas of collapse. And there are some unfavorable patterns that you might see that would disqualify you from Inspire. It's not too common, but as your BMI goes high, that becomes more common. So those are the things that kind of qualify you. Uh, so a recent sleep study, a moderate to severe sleep apnea and a BMI, that's uh, you know less than 32 for the most part. And then CPAP intolerance. And that's a whole conversation. Yeah. You know, um, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in, in a little bit. And John's got a quick question. The sleep study, it's a level one or can they get away with the home sleep test? Yeah, you can have a, you can have a home sleep test. I think we, we talked about this on, on Friday. Um, the, you know, so is there, I guess, is there an upper limit on the AHI? So, I mean, the, the medic, the, the Medicare guidelines are AHI cutoff of 65. Correct. But is there an actual cut? Like, is there a cutoff? Um, not, I mean, it's insurance driven. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield does not, of Michigan does not have an upper limit. Okay. So um, it's a little art, artificial. I think they're just, you know, it's relatively early in the life of this device. First in 2014. I mean, that's not too many years. So they're trying to optimize their results. You know, they're trying to keep the parameters with body mass index and uh, the severity of sleep apnea kind of limited so that their numbers look good and then yeah. they can kind of branch out from there. So I, I guess the question on, on that is that, you know, if there is, if there, some insurance companies would have a cutoff and some, some yeah. don't, if you're using a cutoff of 65 and you're allowing a, yeah, <laughs> I see a, where you're going. A, an, an, an HSAT. Yeah. We know that HSATs underestimate the severity of sleep mm-hmm. apnea. So what's your, like kind of what's, What's your thought on that? So, I mean, if someone has an HIV 64 on mm-hmm. an HSAT mm-hmm. or home sleep apnea study for our listeners, um, odds are in reality, their true AHI mm-hmm. could be in the 80s or not. I mean, I've seen a pretty large discrepancy. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you could be, um, it, what, what, like, what are your thoughts on, on that? I th- like, yeah, I think the guy, so long as with the home sleep study, you're able to uh, get the central sleep apnea, like or the watch pat and mm-hmm. 
some of the, the ResMed, um, if you need to have that number as well. So some of the home sleep studies might not give you that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as you can qualify with, with that, but mm-hmm. so long as you compare your post-op results with the same, so apples to apples. Okay. So you, you would not follow a, uh, a pre-HSAT or pre-inspire pre HSAT with a post-inspire PSG. Right. You would rather, you would. Right. Because I know then, okay. I, I guess mean, that makes sense. It's going to be hard to do that though. Yeah, no, I, so. <laughs> there is a, there is a, 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 honestly, probably more than 50% of the titration sleep studies now, that's, uh, you know, this is not the way that the company is endorsing it right now, but many will just, like t- two to three months out from your activation, um, you'll look at their adherence to therapy, ask them how they're doing, do an EPRA sleepiness scale. And if everything looks good, they'll just do a home sleep study. And if oh. it's less than 10 and everything looks good, they're feeling good, that's it. And that's, those, those are the settings you're going to use. Now, if they're not doing well, um, then you're going to get a titration study. Titration. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So okay. it's a way to kind of streamline the study. Take- I mean, it, it sounds like if you know you're not going to make the Medicare guidelines do home sleep tests. That's what I, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, then, and then afterwards, you know, these people are CPAP failures, you yeah. know, sh- shooting for perfection like we do with CPAP is not not the objective. Mm-hmm. I think you're just shooting for an improvement, yep. improvement in their Epworth and sleep quality. And you can't, can't expect perfection and, and nor have I seen perfection in these cases. So, um, then maybe that's cause I'm lousy, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have to think about it as salvage. Yeah. You know, these yeah. are not, these are the difficult patients who have failed CPAP. Now they're already categorized as difficult and you're, you're hoping that, I mean, if you can get a 50% reduction, you're going to, decrease their comorbidities and all that. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, that's probably, I, I have to agree. That's what we're aiming for. You know, I don't think you're going to see an AHI left at f- less than five in someone who's got a severe case and, you know, but may, I mean, they're out there. I know that you can have that, you know, market improvement in some people, but mm-hmm. uh, being clear about what the goals are with patients is, is, is really important. I think one of the uh, things that I've found um, when I first started doing this, it was a little bit more wild, wild west. You know, people would come in and it's like, oh, yeah, CPAP failure. Well, you know, implant, um, you know, get them all set up and then you'd send them to they, to get the titration study. And, you know, you know, it would be a, get this word back from sleep medicine. This person's been using their CPAP. Why, why did you implant them? <laughs> well, they told me they weren't using it. And uh, <laughs> I can't download any information. I don't have that you know, capability. So, so I've teamed up with sleep at, uh, at both of my practices and I insist that they see sleep medicine first just gotcha. to kind of go through downloads and just for, see if there are other parasomnia is going on, things that are going to make it very difficult for them to use CPAP, you know, insomnia or anxiety issues or, you know, the sleep onsets like two hours and, you know, it's going to be hard for those patients to uh, do well. And, uh, and we've had some you know, failures because of those reasons. And then also the, the patients who just, you know, they'll just t- tell you, I'm not using it. I just don't like it. Uh, I'm not using it. And then their, their wife comes in with them when you're about ready to put the implant is, well, should my husband bring his CPAP with them tonight? You know, <laughs> it's like, Oh God. Um, Oops. <laughs> yeah. So try and avoid those situations. And I think we have a multidisciplinary clinic uh, at U of a, University of Michigan um, where we see the patients together. It's kind of nice. Um, and, and my other practice, I, at the, uh, the sleep medicine folks see them as well. So. You, so you brought up a couple of good points. I think the first is what's, what is the data kind of behind what's, what's happened so far, seven years out, 
where are we? Like, how effective is this? And then what is, you know, John brought up 50%. What, what are, what are we considering to be effective therapy with Inspire? What are we? Yeah. I mean, they do have the initial star, star trial. That was five-year data. Um, and they found that it's about a you know, 67% reduction in AHI is the number at five years. And that was about, they started off with 120 patients. I think about 70 patients were followed that far. What happened to the other 50 patients? Who knows? Um, now there's the Adhere Registry, which is thousands of patients. And that's the uh, Inspire. This is the company Inspire that uh, is sponsoring this. But I'm part of the registry and, you know, we've enrolled like 60 patients and you know, the AHI reduction is like 80% um, or, or better in the, in these patients. This is like one and two years out. Mm -hmm. So it's not like way out, but uh, it looks like it's, it's holding up pretty, pretty nicely. Um, and that so was within the BMI parameters set yeah, originally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The adhere, yeah. The uh, star trial, the original was the AHI 20 to 50. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you feel like being more picky? Yeah. We're getting, I mean, obviously better results then. Yeah. So, I mean, you could definitely see. You know, I mean, so, you know, a 50 or 60% reduction for someone who has severe sleep apnea, mm -hmm. you know, they're still going to have moderate yeah. sleep apnea, but yeah. it could be potentially pretty big benefit in terms of sleepiness. And even from cardiovascular risk, you're still, yeah. you're still reducing their cardio. It's still there, obviously, yeah. but it, it, you're reducing it. Uh, and then the, the second thing that we kind of touched on briefly, and we want to get back to it, is what, what is failure? of CPAP. What does mm. that, what does that mean? Who, who determines it and what exactly is failure of CPAP? We get a lot of consults for this. We do. Like 20 to 40% of our consults are CPAP compliance failures yep. or something. Mm. So what, like at what point do we say enough is enough? Like what's CPAP? And, you know, I know my answer. What's your answer, John? If I've worked with a patient for a year and mm. they're not compliant, it's time to talk alternatives. Like, mm -hmm. we, you know, if I've had consult, study, titration, two or three follow-up visits, and we're just spinning our wheels, it's like, okay, well, let's have, let's talk. We've already been talking about alternatives of yep. initial consult, but it's like, you got to face the facts. If it's not working out, it's not working out. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I'm along the same line as you. I think a year for me is about where I'm like. It's just not going to work. And that's a couple of visits, a couple of mask refits, if that's the problem. Pressure changes for, um, you know, pressure intolerance. And then I usually try to get them in for a, a desensitization where they see sleep psychology to kind of address claustrophobia if they have it. Or, again, pressure intolerance if they have it. But after that point, I mean, if they've tried all that and they're not using CPAP, I don't really know. It seems like there are a lot of patients who just, it's so automated now. You know, they do a home sleep study. It says you need CPAP. And then they... This, you know, dispensed auto pap and, and then nobody's really spent a lot of time with them and they're, then they're failing, you know, they, yeah. they just give up on it and yeah. they've never really I do. Yeah. seen anybody. That initial consult, you know, I, I meet with the patient, I'm like, look at, you know, I, I know you've been managed privately, but or previously by someone else, but I'm like a mechanic, you know, I don't trust anyone else's work anymore. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm going to, I tell them I'm going to start from scratch. You know, we're going to try this, get you a different mask. And I think that approach works for me you know, more than half the time of kind of going through things. And we often find there's some minor equipment issue uh, that was not resolved that they, mm. you know, couldn't comfort issue that they couldn't tolerate. And then we fix that and then things generally go better, but there's obviously still patients that get through the, get through that, that can't tolerate it no matter what we do. Yeah. 
There are some issues, you know, with nasal obstruction. That's, I, you know, I, I see patients that are referred by sleep or that's one of the, All the barriers is yeah. they just can't breathe through their nose. And so you correct their nasal obstruction, which sometimes can be a simple office procedure. Sometimes you have to go to the OR, but that can be one. One of the things I see rarely, but one of the things that's interesting is if they, if they have a floppy epiglottis. And so the, the pap pressure catches the epiglottis and just pushes it right down, right on top of the larynx. Oh yeah. And then all the air goes right into their, you know, the positive airway pressure goes right into their stomach. And if you, somebody has aerophagia mm-hmm. issues, I think that's something to think about. Hmm. Is there anything that can be done? I mean, cause we do yeah. get a lot of patients with aerophagia and my, you know, I think is well, uh, elevate, mm-hmm. you know, lower the pressure, elevate them a little bit, see if they will then can reacclimate to that pressure, mm-hmm. maybe potentially switch to BiPAP for that yeah. pressure relief yeah Yeah. Um, but i have had a couple of patients who i mean i I had one i had one lady who we did she had aerophagia so we elevated her lower the pressure still had aerophagia switched her to bipap bipap induced central sleep apnea so then she ended up on asv (laughs) um yeah but what yeah what what can be yeah they i mean there are a number of i mean surgical things you can do um that like the hyoid suspension we'd uh, uh, we haven't really talked about it, but um, if you pull uh, the hyoid bone forward, it's attached to the epiglottis through a, the hyoepiglottic ligament. Mm-hmm. So as you pull that forward, the that releases that. So the epiglottis comes forward, it doesn't catch it. You can also actually work on the epiglottis. Uh, in kids, they'll do epiglottopexies to the tongue base, or you can take a wedge out of the epiglottis so that it doesn't catch the air. You can see this on a sleep endoscopy. That's the only That's time to see it. I was going to ask you, I was like, when could we, how could we yeah. see that? As- yeah. It's hard to see during an awake exam. Mm-hmm. You might see a floppy epiglottis, but you re- you can't really see it unless you, uh, and I've seen, you know, pictures, you know, when they, they have somebody on the CPAP and they put the scope in during the, you know, while they're sedated and you can really see it then, wow. you know? Yeah. But it's, it's not a common thing. It's something to think about if no, somebody's I- got you know, refractory aerophagia. I never, I never knew that. Yeah. yeah. That's something completely new to me. So yeah. that's interesting. I went, the problem is how do I diagnose that? Yeah. Like how of? do, I mean, we've, yeah. I mean, we, Paul, you and I've talked about doing in office, but they would need to be sedated. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that'd be, yeah. And getting a dice done is already, you could do maybe like with Cine MRI, that would be a way to do it with the, I don't know if you can do a CPAP while they're sedated with an MRI scan, but that would show it okay. <laughs> for sure. Be, Can't wait to call that one into the yeah, radiologist. I know. They would be like, what is Hear this? me out. Wait. <laughs> so, um, so what, like, what about these guys who, or, 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 or ladies who, you know, get their CPAP, use it for one night hmm. and then they're like, I don't want this. I want to inspire. Is that, is that failure or is that? It's come into my clinic and I, I try to do the salesmanship, but at some point, um, and talk about other alternatives, but at some point if someone's dead set on not using the CPAP and we have some pretty hard headed people we Mm. work with, um, I, I have to, you know, it's their, it's their life. If they want to go for a surgery, it's up to them. Yeah. They just, they just have to understand that it's, you know, conservative versus not conservative. Yeah. yeah. I had a guy who uh, yeah. did like three days or maybe like three days of mass descents and was like, nope. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen patients, uh, veterans and non-veterans who've had, you know, PTSD kind of situations where, you know, just, they can't have anything around oh, their yeah. face. And, yeah. A lot of these guys that were in the tunnels in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. T- terrible claustrophobia. They cannot do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or CPAP. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, um, I, I do feel like it it is being a kind of a tur- like a referral center 
both at the university and at the VA, we get a lot of patients who were kind of, as John said, set up outside, you know, private, mm -hmm. not to knock on private, but it, because, and, and you had mentioned the automation of this whole thing, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of them, they're like, you know, they come to us, they're like, I got this thing. No one showed me how to use it. No one really explained to me why I have a CPAP. I don't even know why I got a sleep study. <laughs> it's and sloppy. Then they, and then they get referred for, please evaluate for alternatives to CPAP because they're not using it. And I think a lot of it is education of, you know, why, like, what is sleep apnea? You know, why do you have this thing? What is this machine doing? And yeah, we can talk about alternatives. We should maybe re retry this again before we, we jump to mm -hmm. non-conservative management. So, right. And here we are, Inspire. Here we are, Inspire. <laughs> um, what are some of the, you mentioned risks. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, and, and are there any medical contra, like, risks or medical contraindications to the procedure and then i think the question that everyone has is when does this device need to be replaced right yeah there really aren't any specific medical contraindications i think one of the big contraindications has actually been eliminated now is the the mri compatibility so it is now mri compatible in fact all going back to the devices put in in 2018 forward are now uh, compatible for full full body MRI scan. That was a big yeah. issue. Um, uh, you can have beyond blood thinners, and we can just stop the blood thinner and start them up right again. Most surgeries for sleep apnea, you have to be off blood thinners for quite a while afterwards, just because of the risk of bleeding. Um, but no other real uh, contraindications um, to to the surgery. You can have uh, pacemakers already. Um, uh, it doesn't interfere with the electronics of any other elect uh, electrical device that you might have. That's been a question. If you happen to get um, have a heart attack and need to be defibrillated, there's a good chance it might might right. need to have the device replaced. But mm -hmm. um, you know, if you survive that event, <laughs> that's a good thing and it's a good problem to have. Is it a long surgery? It's about two hours. Okay. Yeah. It sounds it, like it's shorter than it used. I thought it was yeah, two hours originally. It used to be a little longer. There were three incisions when we first started to do it. Uh, there was one uh, under the chin, then one on the front of the chest on the right side. Um, and about about five centimeters below your collarbone, um, and then there was one on the side. The one on the side has been eliminated, which is nice because that was the most painful one. Mm -hmm. And so we're, that was uh, uh, figured out a couple of years ago. So everybody's doing that now. Are they okay for ICDs as well? So like mm -hmm. if someone's getting yeah shocked from yeah. an ICD, is that also safe, or is that likely gonna? It may. It's not a contraindication, but I mean, if it's being shocked, um, you know, it, it may damage the device. Might have to be recalibrated. Okay. Okay. But that's mm -hmm. one of the nice things about this uh, device. It is very. It's an electronic device. You can hook it up to telemetry and do all kinds of programming. Um, so you know, two or three years down the road, if you know, if it's uncomfortable, you feel like your tongue is moving too much or it's waking you up, you can come in and see you know Doctor Dutt or. And he can readjust it and recalibrate it and um, make it comfortable again. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of people, their tongue gets stronger and so they, they don't need as high of a voltage yeah. a couple of years out? Yeah. It doesn't get bigger, but it gets toned up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a workout. Yeah. How quickly does that occur? Um, I think, you know, it, it probably takes a couple of years before you really start oh, right. to see that. that I, you don't, yeah. Yeah. I would expect it to be like a you'd few think months. It, you'd right? think so, yeah. yeah. But people are on the same settings for a long time. I yeah. don't see them coming in quickly for recalibration. I guess I haven't seen just from the duration I've practiced. I haven't 
had people who've been on it for four or five years yet. So, mm-hmm. and I only have one guy who's been on it for who's used to be your patient, John. <laughs> COVID disrupted. My yeah, practice. I think. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, um, I, just, <laughs> I just had a guy come in. He, he had the device placed about three years ago, and he's a, re- a retired police officer. And he said he, you know, he, he kept on trying to use it, but it was waking him up. And when he came into the office, and we turned it on, it was like his tongue just kind of shot out of his mouth. And I was like, oh, you know, so we just, you know, recalibrated, we changed the pulse width, decreased the voltage. These, all these little things you can do to calibrate it. Um, and, you know, it was much more comfortable for him. So it, it makes me wonder, like, is there like a, a range that most people are falling into with the voltage, you know, or if it's just wild, you know, like, yeah, I got, you know, I've got somebody on like one point something, which is pretty low because yeah. I feel like, you know, we start out like I didn't get sensation until like 1.1, 1. 1, 1. 1.2. And I didn't mm-hmm. get functional threshold until like 1.3, 1.4. And then the, he was titrated to like 1. 1.7, 1. 1.8. Yeah, so that's pretty and low. I got somebody at like 3.3, which I thought was like super high. Yeah. Like he's like, no, nope, this is fine. <laughs> like, I feel like if someone jabbed me with a three. But I, I guess I consider like a nine, you know, you, you just stick a nine volt battery on your tongue when you're a kid, right? And you that. So I guess, <laughs> Who didn't? I guess, I guess <laughs> I'm assuming three volts would feel less than what a nine volt felt like yeah. on your tongue. Cause that was a, that was a pretty good. I jolt, don't think so. I've gone over four volts, but yeah. I would have to do a chart biopsy to know. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've seen over four volts either. I mean, we had a guy today who we activated and, you know, he had um, sensation at like 0.5 oh, volt, wow. really low. Yeah. So his range was like, you know, 0.5 to 1.5 that they sent him out on. So, yeah. So, I mean, really low. Yeah. Everybody's different. It seems like it's different. And I wish we could predict that in the uh, OR. We just do specifics. You know, we just want to make sure it's working. Right. So we right. 1.5, make sure it's working. Then we go down to 1.0, still working. Then we go to 0.7 want to make sure it's not retracting because if you, when you go real low, you can uncover the retractors, which kind of dominate. So at low voltages, it'll, it'll I did go not back. Know that. Yeah. I didn't know that either. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So stay above one volt maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, what was it? Do you have any? Well, I was just curious how many, how many of these surgeries do you think you've done at this point? Um, it's about 200. Wow. Yeah. It's getting up there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, I mean, I've got a graphic that just shows, you know, it's, it's getting a little, a little bit of sort of exponential growth, I think, with all the uh, marketing that's being done right now. You know, it's, it was like 10 a year. Now it's going to probably be 60 a year, you know, over the past few years. It's kind of growing. Have you had to take any devices out? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, so when in the days before it was MRI compatible, I had to take out three for MRI scans, which is a bummer because, you know, now that we know that it is MRI compatible, I probably wouldn't have had to. Um, there were two infections, so we were really careful about, you know, aseptic technique, but that was a, a reason to take two out. One was for cosmetic reasons, and um, there's a couple, you know, a lot of different things going on with this patient, but she, she'd lost a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was visible, and then with all the weight loss, her sleep apnea got a lot okay, better, yeah. and that wasn't really doing anything, so she just wanted it out. So that was a reason to... Pretty uh, low complication right? yeah. if it's yeah. just two infections the entire uh, 200 patients. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. What's the um, what's the recovery time? Like how long are we saying to the patients that, you know, when are they going to re- resume active active duty and or is there any, I mean, or can they go back to just um, their yeah. normal life? Right yeah, away? I tell them, um, you know, it depends on what kind of work they do. I mean, I had a, you have patients do, you know, they're very sedentary and then others, this one woman I just saw um, yesterday, she she works with cement and she's hauling cement around. So lifting all kinds of heavy things. And there's others that, you know, are hunters. You have to ask about, you know, where, where are you going to be placing the, uh, 
are you right-handed, left-handed as far as the stock of the rifle or the bow or, or whatever it may be. Uh, but in general, it's uh, one week. Um, as I'll do a, like a video visit in one week just to see how they're doing. Um, at that point, this, um, usually after two weeks, the stereo strips are coming off. I say, take it easy for two weeks. You can resume most normal activities after two weeks. They wear a sling for three days. Um, if you're doing heavy, you know, heavy activities, um, I would say give it a month. Just we don't want anything to go wrong. <laughs> so, um, how big are the incisions? Uh, five centimeters. So two five centimeter incisions. Okay. Um, you know, just right under the jaw um, on the right side, everything on the right side, and then on the on the other side. You probably so. can't even see the one on the under the jaw. The chest uh, one only at the beach. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Actually, I did a. This is there's a uh, case report that we we just did. We had a patient who was very interested in a, a mammopex, you sort of breast lift, mm -hmm. and so we combined the breast lift with with the Inspire implant. So the plastic surgeon and I did this case together, and we were able to put the incision uh, in submammary incision because the breast lift you lift the whole breast up, and mm -hmm. I've got this exposure like I've never had before, and so she has no incision on her chest that she can oh, okay. see at all, yeah. which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, what pocket is that being implanted into? Like, is it third in, uh, yeah, it's, it's above the, it's a, above the pec muscle. So okay. it's subcutaneous, subcutaneous in the fatty tissue of the breast and women, it's hides a lot nicer than men. Men, it just kind of sits there on your pec muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, it's in the third intercostal, right over the third intercostal space. And that's where I put our sensing lead. Okay. Okay. So it's more camouflaged in women? Typically, yeah. I mean, it depends on how much breast tissue they have, but the, the, the breast tissue is thick enough that it, because the, the device is only about a, you know, half a centimeter thick, so mm -hmm. it's not too thick. Yeah, I mean, just curious because cosmetic concerns about scars and incisions can yeah. be an issue. Yeah. There is a, a technique that one of the, uh, my colleagues, um, she's down in Miami, is doing a, sort of an axillary incision for the, uh, uh, to place the, the, the pulse generator, the battery, mm -hmm. and I, I'm anxious to talk to her about that because the incision I did was a, kind of a one-off thing. I think, you know, somebody wanted a breast lift, but hers, I think she's doing it in, in a lot of women who okay. are concerned about the cosmesis, you know, Miami beach. <laughs> it's like, you don't want to have an incision on your, on your chest. So. So yeah, because the standard incision is just up yeah. top, right? So. Right. Um, kind of getting back to our, our patient, Mr. I didn't give him a name. Mr. Mm -hmm. We'll just call him Mr. X. I usually go with a, you know, play on like Schman Barba or something like that. Um, but we'll just call him Mr. X. Um, so he's, you know, you've seen him in clinic. He's, he's come to sleep clinic. We've decided, hey, you know, you've tried everything. It's a no-go. Send him to see Dr. Hoff. You're going to evaluate him and you say, all right, sleep medicine says you're okay for, you know, you're, 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 you failed CPAP. You fall within these requirements. You know, your AHI is less than 65, but it's greater than 20. Your BMI is less than 35, um, and and your your sleep study didn't have excessive central sleep apnea, mm -hmm. less than 25 percent. Yes. Um, so let's get you scheduled for dice. Mm -hmm. So can you describe what that first step? Is? What is you talked about it briefly? What is dice? Yeah. And then what I know you're doing something a little unique with in office dice yeah. as opposed to in OR dice. So right. can you talk a little bit yeah. about both of those and then what? Um, what the data is kind of what you what you're seeing with that with the in office, which I think is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So so dice or drug induced sleep endoscopy is a required step for uh, Inspire for anybody undergoing hypoglossal nerve stimulator 
surgery. And it basically just complements our physical exam, but it's done under sedation. Um, in the office, we'll put a scope in the in your nose after we've numbed it up and we'll look at the airway. Um, typically lay down flat, look at the airway, have you snore really loud, see what the palate's doing, what the back of the uh, pharynx and the tongue are doing. Well, we do that with you sedated as well. And that's the required part. Um, and we have a scale, a, a grading system. It's called the VOTE system. And the VOTE stands for velum, oral pharynx, tongue base, and epiglottis. So those are the different areas that we're looking at. And we can look at the direction and the degree of collapse and we grade those. And so long as you don't have an unfavorable collapse pattern, uh, then you're a candidate for the Inspire. Um, the unique thing that we're doing, it's a study that's been approved by the IRB um, at the University of Michigan and, and pending at the, the other hospital I work at, the St. Joe's, uh, is where we can do, uh, we can actually skip that step as a standalone procedure by just doing a, a, a wake version of that where I described, we lay you flat in the office, put the scope in, have you snore really loud, do that same grading system. And that correlates really well. We did some pilot studies um, looking at the correlation between the awake and the sedated, and it correlates really well with the, what's called anterior-posterior collapse. So if you your uh, collapse pattern is front to back, it's going to be front to back um, when you're sedated. And so that um, so the study is basically um, we do the awake part, and if that's front to back, then you can sign up for the Inspire. We take you to the OR whenever we schedule that. We do a sleep endoscopy immediately before just to confirm the pattern of collapse. And if that's confirmed, then we make our skin incision and get the Inspire. There's a slight chance that you won't get it if, you know, if that it didn't, you know, it was not conforming, you know, the pattern of collapse was a surprise, but it's, that's okay, I guess, you know, you have to assume that small risk, but, you know, you probably wouldn't want the Inspire because it would have yeah. maybe not worked for you. So. Uh, so that's the study. Um, the, the the beauty of it is that the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan uh, approved it. They thought this was a win win for the for them because they get to pay for one less procedure, uh, one less deductible for the patient, um, taking up less OR time for the surgeon because you don't have to do that standalone procedure. So um, it was great. It was a nice collaboration with um, you know insurance company had never done anything like that before, but they were all all about it. And now we're trying to expand that uh, to some other practices in Michigan, because it's only in Michigan we can do this. And it's only Blue Cross Blue Shield that's uh, allowed this, but it's been good. And we've done 10 patients so far and they all went through the, none of them had to be abandoned and we were able to do the Inspire. And I don't have the results on all of them, but they are just like any other Inspire patient where we get the same kind of results. What, what do you think the percentage of patients that go through a DICE or, you know, in office like you're doing that end up finding out they can't do uh, it's probably, it's about twenty percent have a wow. concentric collapse. So, okay. I mean, it's not a, a lot, but uh, maybe a little bit less than that. I, I haven't looked at that specific. I mean, uh, that's my sort of gestalt. Yeah, I mean, we when we send patients to you guys, it's like oh, you probably we think you're probably going to get it, but you know, it's one in five chance of not getting it if the collapse isn't right. Yeah, it's, if their BMI is higher, that's I mean, it's almost a, never happens when your BMI is low. So you feel like it's. The, I, that's the BM just from the fat, just from the, the, yeah. the weight it causes yeah. the, the collapse. You just see when you put the scope and you immediately see all this sort of fatty deposition in the muscles and the tissues and the nasal pharynx. Mm -hmm. That's where the collapse pattern is, has to be unfavorable. So yeah, it gets to be uh, pretty obvious. And it's, you know, it makes me think, I mean, I have my suspicions that the sleep endoscopy is probably going to go by the wayside as a qualifier. Just mm -hmm. we'll probably figure out other things based on their, 
uh, CPAP pressures, um, uh, you know, their BMI, um, uh, neck circumference, different things like that. That'd probably be just as good and cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what, so, so Mr. you know, Mr. Our, our guy, he, mm-hmm. he gets his inspire. He follows and then it's activation after 30 days. Yes. And then follow up potentially again, another 30 days, then titration. At least that's the pathway forward. Yeah. And once he's set on his pressure, he's, he's pretty much good to go. Voltage. Voltage. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. He's pretty much Voltage, good to go. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. The, uh, <laughs> Um, it's kind of an annual follow-up. Um, the well, nice thing with Inspire now, and I keep on saying Inspire, they're the only one that's FDA approved for a, mm-hmm. a, in the U.S., um, but they have something called Inspire Sync that is just coming out. Um, so basically you can download, if you, uh, if the patient gives you permission and you keep, and they keep their app open on their phone, you can have access to their utilization all the time because it's Bluetooth linked to their iPhone. And then you can kind of check and just see what their adherence to therapy is instead of having to hook it up to a USB. Um, so just like you would with the, your, your CPAP. So you can check on them. You could do surveys. Um, the sync has surveys, all kinds of capabilities. So you could ask them to fill out an upward sleepiness scale and look at their adherence, you know, maybe, you know, six months down the road, say, Oh, it's not using the device very much and what's going on. And you can call them up and, you know, check on them that way. Um, but then, yeah, it's just like, just cool. like following a CPAP patient. Do you know when the timeline for that is? I haven't. Uh, so it's the only devices that are, that's the only thing coming out now. So they're, um, oh, so the yeah, new, so, yeah, the new, uh, it's going to be a new remote control that's okay. coming out in January. So anyone with the new remote control is going to be able to do the Inspire yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's the remote control, not the, 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 the device, RV, for, the formerly implanted device that will be transmitting the information. Right. It'll be the remote control. Cool. It'll talk to the, yeah, the to the phone. The, to the phone and to the uh, inserted device. And the, the old inserted back to 2018, they're all going to be compatible. So you can, patients who have an old or current remote control will be able to buy a new one. They okay. don't know how much it's going to cost. It's probably going to be a couple hundred bucks or something, but they can get an, a new one and then have all that capability. And so if they're, make our life a lot easier. Oh yeah. Cause then that well, before they come in, you can, you don't have to like, you know, download the information they come in. It's can because they never bring their remotes to yeah. the office anyways. <laughs> yeah. So, we have like a suitcase of gear to get yeah. the download off that thing. It's a rolling suitcase and I travel from patient to patient. The battery's oh always dead. Yeah. From the last guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's always John. <laughs> Looking at you. Yeah. Hey, I left it's it's plugged in right now. So <laughs> it's not me. Yeah. Um so yeah, there's some good stuff coming up. Yeah. And then the and uh, one of the important things is the battery life. These uh it is battery driven, you know, it's 11 year, 11 year battery life. So that means it's amazing. 11 years down the road, you have to have another surgery just to remove the battery mm-hmm. and replace it. So. And that, that's a pretty simple swap, like yeah. one hour or not even? Yeah, about an hour. An hour? Yeah. Okay. Obviously yeah. you probably haven't done uh, one yet. Or? Um, I've done them, but not, not because the battery died. It okay. was, well, one was because the got, person got defibrillated and needed oh. a new battery. And okay. then, you know, I've taken them out just because, you know, the infection, mm-hmm. the, those couple of infections and the other uh, times I had to explant them. So, so you, you leave the leads in place mm-hmm. and you just take the battery out? Right. Or Did you re-implant the infection after the infection healed? No, or no. no. The, the two patients that I had to explant, I asked them if they wanted to do it again to let everything heal up, but they, they didn't come back. I think yeah. they just said, you know. I shouldn't be concerned with this, but does the whole device come out except for the leads when you replace the battery or are you literally changing the battery in the device? The whole device comes out and there's a little um, lock nut kind of thing. You take the bleeds out mm-hmm. and then the whole unit comes out, the, the pulse generator. 
batteries and all all the electronics. So you come just out. screw so just the a, leads back in and then yeah, drop it back just, in the pocket. Yeah, yeah. It comes in. It's like a little fibrous pocket that it, once you open that pocket, it just like comes right out. So it's kind of neat. It makes another body walls things off. I've been to the. I've seen it in the OR twice. I've, I've gone when I was a fellow. Oh, okay. Uh, at University of Colorado, I I went to the OR a couple of times to go see the procedure. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's. The timing is definitely determined by the neck anatomy. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the, the longest is finding the right branch of the nerve. And everyone's right. a little bit different in yeah. terms of like right. where it is and what their anatomy where is. Where the veins are. So there's always a vein right next to it. It's called the reining vein and it sits right next to the nerve. And sometimes it's kind of right on top of the nerve or the branches. And so, yeah, just working around that. It's kind of, that's the somewhat tedious part sometimes. But it is a, it's a, it's a cool person. I mean, seeing it live is, I always tell our trainees to, yeah to, if you have the opportunity to go to the OR. Yeah. They're always welcome. Definitely always, yeah. go do it. Cause it's always easier to explain to patients what they're getting into if you've seen it yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, what are, let's say someone's not an Inspire candidate. Mm-hmm. They're PEP non-compliant. What else can you offer from an ENT standpoint to, to help them out? Yeah. I mean, I always do a, you know, complete head and neck exam, including the flexible scope in the office. So I'm looking at their, uh, they're looking at their occlusion and you know, how their teeth come together. I'm looking at the size of their tongue, looking at the size of their tonsils. Are they present? Are they huge ton- palatine tonsils? The configuration of their soft palate. A lot of times they have medialized uh, palatopharyngeous muscle. Um, so that's, there's a lot of webbing in the back of the throat. Um, of course, I'm looking at their BMI. That's the first thing when they walk in the door, I'm like, what's their BMI? Are they a candidate for surgery at all? Um, then I look at their nose, make sure that, you know, nasal anatomy, if they have a big septal deviation or enlarged turbinates, then when I scope them, I'm looking for the, at the lingual tonsils and, uh, you know, the, what's the configuration of the epiglottis and also just, there's a, you can see if the tongue base is really far back, um, you know, the muscular tongue, that's a, that's a tough thing to deal with, um, without hypoglossal nerve stimulator or jaw surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do an x-ray of their neck to look at the hyoid uh, bone, see how the, distances from the hyoid to the mandible or the hyoid to mandibular plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's a long distance, it means like, like four, four centimeters. That means that their tongue base is very vertical and it's going to be really occluding when it falls back. It's just going to block things a lot. And so that's a case where one of the surgeries we offer is a hyoid suspension. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the airlift procedure. That's a brand name, but you're bringing the hyoid forward to the mandible. Um, if it's, if it's more than 20 uh, millimeters of, uh, distance between the hyoid man, uh, and the uh, mandible, then uh, that's kind of ruled out. So, okay. so that's, I'm looking at that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of procedures that kind of fall in there, including, you know, lingual tonsillectomy, tonsillectomy, pharyngoplasty, uh, depends on what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's directed with sleep endoscopy, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody has just big tonsils, you don't really have to do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sleep right. endoscopy. And then there's the dental procedures too. So maxillomandibular advancement. Right. And that's done through OM- oral maxillofacial yeah. surgery. Yeah. And those are, those are, you know, if you look at the things that have long-term outcomes mm-hmm. and uh, the only, only procedures that I know of that have data that go out, you know, more than five years are hypoglossal nerve stimulator, which is the star trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the, the adhere registry is shooting for that, but they're a, way, a ways away. And then the data coming out of oral maxillofacial surgery with, you know, bimaxillary advancement, all the soft tissue stuff, hyoid suspensions. I mean, that's like, you know, six month, one year data. And, the, yeah. and when patients 
ask you, so what does the long-term data look like? You know, that's why I think a lot of sleep surgeons are becoming inspirologists. <laughs> you know, they're just, everybody's like looking at the thing that has the best long-term outcome. What, what, was, what was the long-term data on UPPP? Like, I, I feel like yeah. everyone I've seen has been, the sleep apnea has come back. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it worked. It was, yeah, this, this worked for a while. Yeah. And then here I am, you know, 20 years out. Yeah. Such, and I'm back on CPAP. Slight selection bias, right? Because if it cured them, they'd right. come that's, back in. Right. This is, that's yeah. the this is also true. Yes. Yeah. The We're <laughs> only seeing them back because there's a problem. But there was a Danish study that uh, looked at that. And there was, there was some long-term efficacy. But, you know, I think most of the patients end up failing for one Either the tissue stretches out because you're just working with soft tissue that stretches mm -hmm. um, or they've gained weight, mm -hmm. you know, um, or, and the muscle tones changed. So, you know, the, all those different factors come in, come into play. Uh, you don't really stand much of a chance <laughs> with all those things going on uh, for any kind of long-term outcome, unless you're changing the skeletal framework or mm -hmm. stimulating the nerve. Yeah. Um, of, of these surgeries you've been discussing, um, when I send patients to ear, nose, and throat, you know, I d unless they're going to go do Inspire, I don't expect, or they have whopper tonsils, I yeah. don't expect my patients with severe sleep apnea to like be significantly improved by surgery mm -hmm. unless it's Inspire or a tonsillectomy. Yeah. Um, is that, is that been your experience too with the surgeries? Like, you know, I, I don't know what the airlift, if, if it's really effective for moderate or severe or if it's case by case. I mean, these are all case by yeah. case, right? But, um, yeah. or, or, or am I right to assume these other procedures are more mild to moderate cases? Um, you can get about a 50, like an airlift standalone, you can get like a 50% reduction. Mm -hmm. Uh, as long as their BMI is not, you know, like over 35, a lot of, a lot of this, when BMI gets over like 35, most surgeries aren't going to be that, that successful. Um, if you do multi-level surgery, like if they have big lingual tonsils, um, you, and if you do lingual tonsils plus the palate, if they have even small tonsils, but you kind of expand that area, the, the data, most of it shows, this is like, you know, six month, one year data, you know, 67%, you know, success rate, mm -hmm. meaning. And that's using the share criteria, which is a 50% reduction in mm -hmm. AHI and an AHI less than 20, which is still moderate sleep apnea. So, yeah, so the data is not great. I mean, but, you know, hopefully these are surgical, I mean, uh, CPAP failures. So yeah, you're, right. they're kind of fall in that same category as, you know, the improvement, not perfection. Right, mm -hmm. right. And the, the problem is we don't have long term data on anything other than Inspire and the, the skeletal framework. Is Inspire becoming the majority of the, procedures you do for sleep apnea. Now. It is. It is. I mean, I still, I, I still definitely do probably as many, you know, pharyngoplasties because not everybody is interested in mm -hmm. having an implanted device. And especially as you get to younger people and if they look, because you can always do an Inspire later. And if you can, you know, give them a good, you know, long success, maybe, maybe it will last them if they have reasonably good sized tonsils or they do well for five, 10 years. And if they start to have recurrence, now they're older and then you could, you know, come back and offer them something like Inspire. Tonsillectomies, if I see grade three or four, mm. I typically refer. Yeah, that's reasonable. Okay. Yeah. Less than that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not going to make a huge impact on their sleep apnea. And then something that comes up with tonsils is sometimes it'll be asymmetric tonsils. Mm, yeah. Originally I was taught uh, it could be malignancy, second yeah. DNT. Yeah. But it seems like a, those get kicked back like, yeah, hey, don't worry about it. You know? Right. Yeah. And I mean, if they're having symptoms or if there's something ulcerating on them, you know, mm -hmm. something looks funny, 
Um, but a lot of times they just kind of sit a little funny. If you take them out, they're the same size. Okay. okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I remember I sent one for like, I was like, this is something wrong. And yeah. they're like, don't worry about it. <laughs> it happens. I was like, yeah. <laughs> you can palpate them too. You know, if you want to put your finger back and usually tonsils are somewhat soft. <laughs> That's out of my scope. <laughs> that, I can just see that. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. That's uh but palpating would tell you how, how big they are. Like, no, just if they're, if it's firm, you know, that would be. Oh, okay. you know, oh I yeah. see. If there is malignancy. Yeah. 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 I went to see my sleep doctor. He put his hand on my throat. Like, so. yeah. That's funny. Um, Patient advocate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that would, uh, we would get a complaint for that. Um, well, I think, do you have any other questions? No, I, I think this was helpful, even the second go around. Uh, yeah. Because we got to some, a lot of other questions we didn't get to last time. Yeah. But yeah. Th more thoroughly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Paul, is there anything else you, you think you want to add that's important to our listeners about inspire or kind of the sleep, the, the, the surgical sleep evaluation? No, I, you know, I think just the main thing is it's a, really, it's a multidisciplinary approach is particularly when you started to get into inspire. Um, I think before inspire came along, there wasn't a lot of buy-in for good reason from sleep medicine, you know, and a lot of time it was just sort of a, almost like a wild west thing. You know, somebody comes in with sleep apnea, they're never going to be followed up with sleep medicine necessarily, unless they their sleep apnea comes back and they're looking for a CPAP again. But now it's a real teamwork because with Inspire, um, we both have to be in agreement because it's, I do the surgery, but sleep medicine manage them long-term. Mm -hmm. So if there's not buy-in on both sides, it's going to, it's, it's not going to be a happy relationship <laughs> and it's, it's good for the patients. We don't want to operate on people that are not going to be successful. It's hard enough already. And it's, you want to optimize your chances. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I really do. A pro, uh, uh, I think enjoy the, be multidisciplinary. I think that's one of the cool things about sleep is that there's so many fields to get into. And I think that we get to work together and we get different viewpoints on, on everything. So I think that's one of the more enjoyable aspects of sleep is being able to work with, you know, ENT or Palm or psych or, mm -hmm. you know, depending on the issue. So um, it really, it's uh, I think beneficial for the patient to have so many different viewpoints, viewpoints on, yeah. on how to manage one condition. So, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't have any other questions. So again, thanks for doing this, uh, second time around. Uh, it, it did record. So, um, yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll, um, have we'll, fun in Dubai and Iceland. Oh yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. So, um, you'll make it there eventually. Your kids will grow up at some, yes. At some point. <laughs> I think I have another like three or four years before I start doing any like international travel, but I miss it. Um, so thank you all for listening. We hope you uh, learned something and had some fun while listening. And we'll be back next month with another episode. Uh, this is Dr. Dutt and Dr. Barkham signing off from the White Noise Podcast. Have a good day.